are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation talked to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, and today we have two special guests, Dr. Fadil Khabib and Dongo Silla from Senegal to talk to us about why Africa needs monetary sovereignty and the future of the monetary sovereignty movement. So we have Dr. Sila from Senegal here today. You work in economics and development. So can you tell me a little bit about what you study and what you do? Okay, I did my PhD on development economics. I started working on the informal economy in Africa, especially in Senegal. And the objective of my PhD was to show that the neoclassical economics could not help understand what is going on in the labor markets of developing countries. Because in developing countries, the so-called labor market is much more heterogeneous than what is assumed in uh, neoclassical economics. Uh, hold on. Neoclassical economics, do you mean like Keynes or do you mean more like... I, I mean conventional economics, the type of economics which is dominating the teaching of economics uh, worldwide. It's not Keynes, it's not Marx. It's the auto-liberalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, say, those who say that markets are always perfect, economic agents <laughs> are rational, we do not live in families, society... And invisible not... hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it doesn't work in any country, but why, does it, why is it less relevant to developing countries or previously colonized countries? Yeah, because uh, neoclassical economics assumes away the important um, characteristics of developing countries. They tend to have a type of universal kind of analysis, uh, which uh, leads to uh, one side is all policies. And that's the kind of policy you find uh, with the World Bank, the IMF, etc. There is uh, what is called the historical specificity. That means for different kind of um, societies, framework, historical settings, you need different types of theories, but you don't have that in neoclassical economics. Institutions uh, do not matter, neither history. So we also have Dr. Fadil Kaboub, and we've had him before to talk about various things relating to trade deficits and the IMF. So we're going to put a link below and please follow that episode. But Dr. Fadil, can you please just give a quick overview of your research? So my, my work is focused on um, an area called modern monetary theory, which is sort of a sub-school of thought that emerged out of post-Keynesian economics, uh, institutional economics over the last couple of decades. And it's really, you know, bringing to the discussion an analytical lens that allows us to shine a bright light on the economic structure and the legal structure and political structure to identify how the system actually works, both in developed and developing countries. And then once you see the mechanics and the dynamics of the system under this lens, it allows us to figure out where the deficiencies are, where the problems are, and sort of allows us to think about some possibilities. It doesn't mean people will take those possibilities, but at least it exposes the, the weaknesses. And, and there are several you know, deficiencies in, in the dynamics of the international system. I'll just start us off with, with one, uh, and maybe Ndongo will, will follow up and, and tell us more about this. So if you take, for example, the whole world and divide it into two groups of countries, rich countries and poor countries, and net out all the financial transactions going all over the world, including trade, including foreign direct investment, including loans and interest payment and charity and debt forgiveness and all of these things, and you figure out where does the money actually flow at the end of the year, it turns out that $2 trillion a year are extracted from poor countries moving to rich countries. And that's the, those are the latest figures we have. And it's, it's not new and it's not stagnant. You know, 20 years ago when I started looking at this, the number was something like $500 billion and it kept increasing and increasing. And as you've guessed, we haven't done anything to change that dynamic. So if we have this conversation in five or 10 years, <laughs> I, I bet the number will be three or $4 trillion. So that's just a broken system. That, that's just unsustainable. With regards to a modern monetary theory, one of the most important issues is monetary sovereignty. Many countries, and most countries probably in Africa, do not have that because of 
various treaties, trade deals, the IMF, World Bank. Their currency is is not used to trade, and so it's not useful outside. So they have to almost have somebody else's currency, like the U.S. currency or the euro. How does the um, IMF structure during the trade actually affect that? And how should we change it to make it so that these countries' currencies are just as good as the euro? First of all, monetary sovereignty has a specific uh, meaning for MMT, modern monetary theory. MMT defines as the monetary the sovereign government that issue their own currency, that collect taxes in their own currency, that does not uh, pack their currency to any other one, and that also has no sovereign obligation denominated in a foreign currency. Uh, that means basically zero sovereign debt in foreign currency. And if you see in the case of developing countries, the most difficult condition to meet is to have a zero debt, zero sovereign debt in, the, in foreign currency. Why? Uh, because this is a sign of different forms of dependencies. They have technolog- technological dependencies, financial dependencies, banking dependencies, etc. And that's what explains that they do not have the same level of monetary sovereignty as, let's say, more developed countries like the U.S., Japan, and so on. So monetary sovereignty has to be uh, seen as a, as a spectrum, as a continuum uh, between the mostly sovereign countries and countries which have no sovereignty at all because some countries are in monetary zones. Those countries do not have monetary sovereignty. And there are some countries which have dollarized, like Ecuador, which do not have uh, either any uh, monetary sovereignty. But still, the point is, even with this limited degree of sovereignty, they have possibilities using their own national currency. Um, quick question. Is Senegal part of the CFA zone? Yes. Can so you please st- talk about that? Because I don't think m- most people understand what it is. Yeah, Senegal is a good case because Senegal has no monetary sovereignty at all because Senegal is a member of a currency union, the West African Monetary Union. And this currency union is a legacy of colonialism because the currency they use, the CFA franc, was created during colonial times in 1945, just after the Second World War. So it was created by the French government at the time. And at the time, it uh, meant far of the French colonies in Africa. After decolonization in 1960, most African countries started to issue their own currency when they have their, their, their um, national sovereignty, when they break out from colonialism. But in the case of uh, Francophone colonies in West Africa, most of them uh, stood with this colonial currency and their monetary policy and all the currency arrangements are decided from Paris until now. So those kind of countries, they don't have uh, monetary sovereignty. Can I make one clarification? I don't think they stood with it because as much as they were forced upon it. I think Guinea voted no, and then the French just destroyed everything in the city. Yeah, that's true. Because in 1958, there was a referendum in the French part of the colonial empire saying that, do you want independence? And Guinea was the only country saying yes, yes, we want independence. And in 1960, they started to issue their own currency. And as a, a retaliation, the French secret services flooded the Guinean economy with false banknotes and they disrupted totally the economy. And yeah, they took everything they had, <laughs> even it, their friends, everything. Yeah, they, they took out hospital beds and everything. Yeah. Uh, okay, so it, so it was mostly forced upon you. And France has some of your currency in reserves. How does that work? Yeah, in fact, um, every uh, country has uh, accumulates foreign exchange reserves. So foreign exchange reserves are international means of payments, and they are stored by the central bank. As we are in the currency uh, union, and we have signed cooperation agreements with France, those agreements say that half of all our foreign exchange reserves have to be uh, deposited with the French treasury in Paris. So that means if you were to send me $100, half of it would go to the um, French treasury 
yeah, so that <laughs> this provides the, somehow, as they say, a way of friends to guarantee that our currency is strong and yeah, accepted by others. But it's, yeah, you know. Robbery. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's a video. I'm not, I think it's Chirac who said something like, France would be a third world country without Africa. Was that it? Yeah, yeah, it was Chirac. But you would find such kind of statements at least uh, since the period of decolonization. In 1957, Mitterrand wrote that in a book that without Africa, France would have no history in the 21st century. Which is an excellent point. So what does it mean to not have monetary sovereignty? So suppose in the U.S., we want to do the new Green New Deal and build a high-speed rail. The U.S. can just um, pass an act of Congress and they'll just print money and make the railroad. So for you, what happens when you try to do that public spending? So as Dongo said, different countries have different degrees of monetary sovereignty. So uh, a country like the U.S., Japan, Canada, the U.K. have a very high degree of monetary sovereignty, which translates into exactly what you're asking about, which is, you know, the spending capacity or what we call the fiscal policy space is much larger in the U.S. than, than other places. So what determines the spending capacity? Well, most mainstream economists will tell you that the spending capacity is limited by tax revenues and borrowing capacity, which means like market discipline, in other words, which makes it very small spending capacity. MMT essentially says, no, 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 it's much, much larger than that. It's not unlimited. It's constrained by the potential risk of inflation. So then MMT economists become obsessed with the risk of inflation because we want to spend on something like the Green New Deal and so on. So what determines that potential risk of inflation that will constrain us ultimately? It turns out to be two things. One is the lack of productive capacity can cause inflation. In other words, if we run out of machines and raw materials and skilled people to do things, then we get to an inflation pressure point. The good news about that, productive capacity is producible. We can train people. We can build more infrastructure. We can build more resources. The second risk of inflation has to do with market power, or what I describe sometimes as abusive market power, when you have key corporations, sometimes a handful of individuals in a country who can essentially raise prices because they can or because we let them, because they're corrupt, because they're not regulated. So that kind of inflation risk is not going to go away by spending less and imposing austerity. It only goes away when you tax and regulate their market power out of existence. And when you do that, that pressure, that suffocation that they impose on the economy gets you know, removed and you have larger fiscal policy space, larger spending capacity. So those are the things that MMT sort of shines the bright light and says, these are your pressure points and this is how you can eliminate them by investing more in things that will allow you to have larger spending capacity. So when we apply this question to developing countries, post-colonial countries, you realize that the productive capacity is limited, but it's not impossible to increase productive capacity, especially in key areas that are essential to people's quality of life, which is food, so food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, especially renewable energy sovereignty, access to basic resources, these things are producible. And you can have an industrial policy, an agricultural policy that prioritizes the need of the people and allows you to increase your degree of monetary sovereignty and as a result, increase the degree of your economic sovereignty and Essentially, if you do that, you increase the degree of your political sovereignty as well. And also the actual democracy. Exactly. Exactly. So it's really about democratizing the, the local economy, democratizing the market. Okay. Um, just a few more introductory questions before we get to your project and your paper on Africa. We talked about the IMF a lot. Um, with the World Bank, they give allegedly loans for development project. But there's a catch. And can you talk about how exactly do these development project works and what are the thousands of strings attached to them? The, the World Bank and the IMF are usually called the 
Bretton Woods institutions because they were created after the World War in a context, let's say, dominated by the U.S., uh, which uh, emerged as the most powerful economy after the Second World War. And basically, they were conceived in a way as to defend the U.S. economic interest worldwide. And in the case of developing countries, their actions have started to be really felt starting from the 1980s with what were called the structural adjustment plans. And there was a division of labor between the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The International Monetary Fund is specialized on short-term issues. For example, a given country has a balance of payments problems, having problems to pay uh, its imports, uh, to pay its debt, the IMF will come, will lend uh, short-term money, short-term loans to uh, help balance these payment problems and uh, will, uh, as counterparts, a certain number of policy measures, generally liberalizing trade, privatizing uh, public sector enterprises, and limiting um, public spending, and so on. The case of the World Bank is to uh, help achieve what they call structural adjustment. That means uh, measures which are inscribed in the long term. And uh, generally, the types of projects financed by the World Bank are projects which create investment opportunities for big companies in the global north. For example, you would never see the World Bank fund uh, an agricultural project which would help achieve self-sufficiency in the global south. Never. They will prefer to say, liberalize your agricultural sector so that we will come with imports from the U.S., subsidized imports uh, from, from the U.S. That is typically the, the role of the World Bank. That means creating market opportunities for the global north. And they had a president who said clearly in the 1980s, urgent black, that the role of the World Bank is to create opportunities for U.S. businesses uh, in terms of markets, in terms of investment opportunities, and also formatting, shaping the economies of the global south so that they are responsive to the ideology of uh, free enterprises of the U.S. So it also sticks you with a big loan in foreign currencies that you have to pay back. What happens, let's say, if you get a new president and say, okay, this is is unfair, we're not going to pay back? Yeah, you can't. You you are mostly obliged to pay because now the private creditors are really well organized because there have been a centralized, uh, let's say, uh, of the possibilities to give loan to the developed countries. Banks uh, have become bigger in the global north and also individual investors have become bigger. So now they are much more organized and they can put pressure on countries of the global south. There is one um, one anecdote, a big Banker saying that, yeah, if you do not pay the debts, how would you uh, yeah, find money to, to buy for your essential medicines, etc. Et so they could always blackmail our countries. And the role of the IMF is exactly to say that if you don't comply with what the um, uh, global financial investors want, we will not give you short-term loans to address your, your urgent issues. And of course, the best case scenario would be to have your own pharmaceuticals to make your own medicine, but yeah. Yeah, so to add to what Ndongo said about this blackmailing situation, uh, yes, a president or prime minister can declare, we're not gonna pay these debts, this is not fair, but you have to have a plan, not just declare it, otherwise you're, you're, you're stuck, because this is what happens. When you don't have a plan B to produce your own food, to produce your own, medicine to to build that resilience that you need so that you can you know be exposed to ex- an external shock and not suffer the consequences you have to have those investments domestically so in order if if you do that without having plan b this is what happens and th- and this is why the blackmailing is really effective because the next day what's going to happen to your exchange rate is going to depreciate so the value of your currency relative to the dollar the euro is going to get weaker which means the next morning, if you want to buy medicine for your people or food for your people, you're going to be importing stuff at a much more higher cost in real terms, which means you're importing inflation, which means within a matter of days, in some cases hours, you're going to have food riots on the streets. So you're going to have social unrest. That prime minister is going to be overthrown, right? essentially. Or they're going to have to go back and, and say, sorry, I made a mistake. 
uh, I'm, I'm going to follow the rules now. Uh, and that's, that's really the, the problem. So regardless of how progressive or leftist or radical the people you elect are, if they don't have a, an economic development strategy that builds resilience internally, it doesn't matter how radical or how arrogant you can be with the IMF or the World Bank, because sooner or later you'll be disciplined. That's exactly what the Greek uh, Yanus, oh, I can't remember his last name. He, that's exactly Yanis what he Arifakis. Yes, that's exactly what he said. Um, so last week you sent me an email um, talking about where you've written an open letter about Africa, how the, well, Africa's been handling the pandemic fantastically that most people don't talk about probably because they're used to it, I guess, or they've done this before, but they're not able to 100% recover from COVID when they don't have monetary sovereignty. So can you talk more about what is behind your letter and what is going on and what you hope to see? So first of all, I mean, it's, uh, it's really complicated to say that Africa has handled the pandemic better than other places. So we, we can go into no, this, this. I didn't discussion. mean better than other places, but sure. as, they don't get as much credit as they should in the press is what I meant. Um, and Dongo, maybe you want to say something about the pandemic response itself? In fact, we, we could not say that Africa has been successful in dealing with the pandemic. What is clear from the facts we have until now is that the pandemic has done less damage when we talk about the health outcomes and the economic outcome compared, let's say, to other places. We did not have in Africa the same kinds of economic impact compared to the US, to the UK, etc. And the same goes for the health outcomes. Many people predicted that things would be really uh, catastrophic for Africa. It turns out this was not the case. We don't have enough explanations for that, but some explanations we could give is that, for example, Africa has a young population, and we know that young people are not generally infected, and when they are infected, they have a greater probability uh, not to die of it. The other thing is also that the, the pandemic, uh, Africa was, uh, let's say, the last region to experience the pandemic. It started in Asia, it started in, in the U.S., in Europe, before coming to Africa. And uh, when it comes to Africa, there have been some forms of lockdowns to prepare, let's say, the health authorities. At the same time, Africa is somehow accustomed to pandemics, epidemics, etc. For me, those are the, the reasons, but maybe there are other reasons we, we ignore. We could not say because we are better than the others or we, are, we were more prepared, but there has been a um, number of things explaining that yeah, it has not been so little as uh, in the most, most, most regions. But to tell you the story behind this open letter that we're releasing in a, in a few days uh, to the public. It's, you know, we have to go back maybe two or three years ago when uh, Ndongo, myself, and a couple of our colleagues in Tunisia and Germany started a conversation about the role of MMT analysis in understanding the process of economic development in Africa in particular. So we started with organizing a conference that we held in Tunis last November on uh, economic and monetary sovereignty in the African context. And we thought this would be the first introductory sort of uh, first stab at, at bringing this analysis to understanding economic development. And we were uh, pleasantly surprised by the level of engagement and, uh, and enthusiasm about the possibilities that this analysis brings in. Uh, and the level of enthusiasm about the fact that we're sort of reviving an old debate uh, and tradition that that sort of emerged in the beginning during the independence years and then was kind of removed from from the discourse for a variety of reasons. So after that conference, you know, we we were planning on having a second iteration of that conference in, in Dakar. Uh, but then with the pandemic situation, we, we've postponed that to 2021. Hopefully, the, the pandemic will be uh, under control by then. And the pandemic hit and exposed a lot of these structural deficiencies, which essentially convinced us that our approach that was highlighting the importance of food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, uh, industrial development, building internal resilience to these external shocks, was more important than ever with the uh, pandemics. 
So we we drafted this this open letter and we shared it with a, a number of colleagues and. Uh, in Africa, in the global south, and uh, in the global north as well. So we we have something like 500 plus uh, signatures uh, at this point uh, from people all over the world, and and we decided this needs to be translated in languages of the global south because we really want not just policymakers and their advisors to to read this. They can obviously read it in English or in French or whatever, but we wanted to build the social movement, activists, organizers, community leaders to have a different narrative, a coherent alternative that essentially, you know, demonstrates why the existing development approach is weak and calls for an alternative approach that's focused on economic and monetary sovereignty. So we ended up with 50 translations, at least 50 translations that we'll be releasing in the next few days. Uh, and I'll let uh, Ndongo add to, to this. I, I would say that Farel has uh, given a good summary of our project which started, as he, as he said, um, some years ago, to say that it's in monetary sovereignty is important and it's the way to go if African countries want to have, um, let's say, more sovereignty on their policies and also build more resilience in face of external shocks. The point of this letter, open letter, is to say that since the independence, there have been a number of policies which have been followed by African countries, saying that you have to attract foreign debt investment, you have to uh, base your growth on exporting commodity raw materials, etc. You have to privatize public sector enterprises, etc. You have to overpromote tourism, etc. And we are trying to say that, yeah, this kind of model could not work. And we have to think differently about um, sustainable path to prosperity for the African continent. And to that end, we have to think through the lens of uh, monetary sovereignty, how it could help African countries tackle the, the challenges they have in um, achieving self-sufficiency in food, in energy, giving jobs uh, to, to, to everyone, and also at the same time, making sure that the economic model is uh, sustainable ecologically. This has been our, our, our message uh, in this open letter. While you're signing and helping spread the letter for African monetary sovereignty, please also sign up for our newsletter and podcast at historically.substack.com. We'll do all we can to help battle the IMF by inviting great guests and dragging the World Bank on Twitter. Once again, please go to historically.substack.com and check out our other shows and newsletters, and you can help support us with your subscription. So people in America have a hard time imagining a lot of things because they've never experienced it. Like, so during the COVID crisis, um, you talked about food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So you have to import foods. But what happens during a crisis is that ships are barred. So then when you don't have food sovereignty, you have huge problems. So like that, what other ways has the COVID-19 epidemic expose the problems of monetary sovereignty? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good question. I can give the case of, of Senegal because in Senegal, we are dependent on our daily consumption on rice. We produce rice, but our rice is not so competitive compared to the rice we uh, import from Asia. Why? Because uh, we have opened the borders for the rice from Asia to, to come to Senegal. At the same time, we have an overvalued exchange rate, which makes it easier to import rice instead of producing it in Senegal. So when the pandemic comes in, what happened was that Senegal needed to import rice. And as our foreign exchange were depleting, we did not have uh, much choice. We had to find those extra foreign exchange to import rice from China. So that means we did not give jobs to our farmers because they could have produced rice and we have used our staff's foreign exchange reserves for products uh, to import products we could, we could have produced ourselves. So you see it's a loss in two fronts. In financial terms because we are uh, allocating our foreign exchange reserves in a way that is not really rational and at the same time we are depending on others and uh, if the, the, the countries in Asia say to us no we are in the pandemic we don't want to, to export that would create uh, very difficult problems for, for the Senegal.
So food sovereignty is really uh, important. So another thing is they try to get you to, I guess they may have already to privatize everything, including the water. But obviously, I don't believe that everyone is just mistaken. It's clearly a way for people to get make money and it's profitable. So how do we get actual change when there's basically the entire U.S. government is set up to make sure that people are able to profit from developing countries? Like, what, what is the way that you see out of this dilemma? So it's a very good question. I think this is part of the motivation behind the work that we're doing with this open letter, with this hopefully movement, is really to inspire people you know, activists, organizers, average, you know, informed citizen, so that they understand the mechanics of what's happening, so they can be the force behind these changes. Because I don't believe any of this is going to happen with enlightened leaders and presidents and prime ministers, just because of the global, the existing power structure is not going to allow for that. So I'll give you a concrete example to illustrate what some of the obstacles are. So remember that what I said earlier about the increasing the, the spending capacity and part of the limitation is the risk of inflation and part of it is too much market power by a handful of individuals who raise prices because they can and kind of hold the economy hostage because they can or because we let them. So it's the issue of corruption. So I'll give you a concrete example just to illustrate how this works. Many developing countries, because they're dependent on food imports like rice or wheat and so on, or gasoline for energy and things like that, they end up assigning exclusive import licenses to a handful of individuals, usually very powerful individuals, to become the exclusive importer of wheat, the exclusive exclusive importer of rice, of, of gasoline, of kerosene, whatever the country, and medicine and medical equipment. So then those individuals acquire a massive amount of economic power and political power. In some cases, they tend to be the cousin of the president or a major military general or something like that. So now imagine the following scenario. You're importing wheat, for example, for the country. And global wheat prices go up because of climate change, because Russia and the Ukraine and Australia decided food prices are going to go up. So now you're importing at a higher price. So that gives you sort of an excuse to raise domestic prices of wheat products, say, by uh, by 20% to match the global increase in prices. But then a year later, global prices come down back to their initial level. But you decide you're going to reduce your price by only 10% or 15%, not all the way to the initial level. So that gives you an idea about the market power that happens there. Number two, in terms of your question about how can we change this, imagine now there is a movement in the country that's calling for food sovereignty. Small farmers and informed citizens, because they heard this conversation and they've learned about this from Dongo's work, and they decide we want to start supporting local farmers to build resilience and food sovereignty. Now, you're that one powerful individual who controls the wheat market in the country. Then you have political leverage, you have economic leverage. What are you going to do about that? Do you think you're gonna, they're going to stand by and let that happen? They're going to use whatever leverage they have politically, economically, to make that movement go away. In some cases with power and influence, in some cases with propaganda, in some cases by funding research that says this is not a good idea, in other cases via the use of violence. So there's a whole spectrum of possibilities of how you stop those movements and, and this is, by the way, I'm not saying this is necessarily external influence. This is just the self-interest of the individual, <laughs> let alone yeah. if you have external forces that says it's really not in our interest to have country X, Y, Z stop importing wheat from Russia or the Ukraine or the U.S. or Australia or whatever, whatever the product is. This is just an example. So none of this is going to go away unless you have a social movement a grassroots movement that's well-informed, that knows the mechanics of what's happening so that they know what the real obstacle is, so that they're not fooled into thinking, oh, this is some magical thing that happens in the foreign exchange market. No, no, no. This is a particular individual. And when I start exposing and giving these examples, and sometimes I talk about this in countries that have never visited, the next thing that comes up, you know, from the people I'm having this conversation with, they say, oh, I know exactly who that person is. And they start (laughs) naming people. 
because people know who are the powerful individuals who control particular markets. So once you have that, then you know what the corruption mechanics is, what the forces behind the scenes are, so you can better organize as an environmental activist, as food sovereignty activist, as pro-democracy activist, as human rights activist, you know what the obstacles are. And that's why I say we have, you know, no, there's really no way to undo all of this if we just think if we elect the right person, the right prime minister, everything will be great. We actually spoke about this exact thing last week over email, and it had to do with the Forex market and nationalizing it. And I remember you, you were like, the economists tried to make it all seem like it's all the fault of one individual as opposed to the pressure from the IMF that kind of made the uh, foreign exchanges kind of fluctuate. So I remember having this exact same conversation. It's If the structure is the same, regardless of which individual is in the front, it's going to be always the same problem. And one thing that I do want to mention is that we last time we kind of talked about with Fadil, we did talk about how countries lose food sovereignty. And I've also written an article, and a lot of times it's from colonialism, where they turn the country into a cash crop producer, and so they don't have food sovereignty anymore. So why has it been so hard? It's been like in the past 50 years to even make a small dent from the colonial years of like getting food sovereignty? Well, it's not an easy question, but I'll try to provide some insights. The first thing is that decolonization is not a finished business because what happened is that colonizers left, for example, Africa, but the political institutions were not changed. That means, for example, in most African countries, the current rulers are just replacing those who were there before during the colonial period. So the state in itself remains colonial in some aspects. Uh, for example, there is a divide between, let's say, the urban citizens and the rest of the rural sector, which the rural sector where the rights of people is, let's say, less protected, are less protected than for, for urban citizens. In the economic sector, the legacy of colonialism is still there and it's still much more powerful than in the political sector because you have this pattern of division of labor saying that you have to export commodities so that you will earn these foreign exchange reserves which will allow you to pay your debt, to pay your essential imports, your medicines, etc. And so to escape from this is really very difficult because uh, most African countries are indebted in foreign currencies. And if you want to pay that debt, you have to earn foreign currency income to, to pay that. At the same time, the big companies operating in the, the global south generally and the foreign debt investment, you know, you say, ah, foreign debt investment is good. This will develop, this will create jobs. No, it doesn't create jobs. In Africa, uh, you see for a continent of 1.3 billion people, foreign debt investment is creating each year around 100,000 jobs. So you could not rely on foreign tech investment to pay jobs. But their effect is, let's say, to transfer uh, net resources from the continent to abroad. So illicit financial flows, so the remittances of profits, etc. So all these financial bleedings contributing to maintain this uh, pattern of division of, of labor. Uh, may, may I just add one clarification so people understand? In Africa, for example, in Congo, they take um, the minerals for cobalt and whatever. And so then they send it abroad and they manufacture the iPhone. So now in order to like the iPhone costs about $500 or $600, but the minerals like you have to send 10 times as many minerals in order to make make up the cost of the one iPhone you've imported. So that's kind of the often creates huge yeah, there's there a very good example it's about coffee because coffee is produced in in africa and some countries in latin america for example with one kilo of coffee produced in africa you can manufacture let's say 200 cups of coffee in the global north and the peasant in africa is just receiving the price of one cup of coffee for his one kilogram of coffee you see and uh, if you want to develop Africa, maybe it's good to export raw coffee, but we have to do our best to transform it 
coffee, cocoa, and all other minerals to process it domestically so that we will retain some part of the value added and this will create jobs. But if we still continue to export cotton, to export coffee, cocoa, oil, and other minerals, yeah, this won't work. But this has been the colonial pattern and you see it in most African countries. And even those who escaped this uh, commodity dependency, they are still exporting very low value added uh, manufacturing products. And that is what, uh, what, what, what we say in our um, open letter, that we have to move beyond this type of specialization. Have we talked about the heavy privatization of state-owned enterprises and what that has meant? So one of the things that happens is that governments are forced into privatizing the airport, the airlines, the telecom company, because they're starving for dollars and euros and British pounds to pay the external debt and to continue importing basic necessities. The problem is when you sell the airlines or the telecom company, you generate a few hundred million dollars, which most countries spend within a year or two, mostly in paying down some of their external debt but they haven't changed anything structural in their economy to really move beyond that trap. And now you're back to square one with very limited resources and with the ideology behind this is, you know, from a neoliberal perspective, is starving the beast, starving the government so that it's further weakened in the next round so that it submits to the demands of external you know, lenders and, uh, and financial institutions and so on. And, and the problem is, you know, and this is if you do it in a transparent, you know, democratic way, the privatization process that is, but in many cases, the privatization process itself is corrupt. So it's further weakens the domestic economic uh, structure. It further weakens the resilience of the country. It further weakens the democratic process and it gives you know, much more power and influence and, and abusive behavior to whoever is connected to that deal. Sometimes it's members of the military. Sometimes it's the business oligarchy. Sometimes it's the, you know, cousin of the prime minister or whatever that is. So none of this is good. And in, in most developing countries, we've seen the wave of privatization that happened in the 1990s, mostly in the early 2000s. By the way, when you privatize the airport, you can't privatize it again after a few years. It's, it's gone, right? So all of the, that which can be privatized has been privatized. So Literally that is mostly eliminated. <laughs> I was just looking at a picture of Ghana. Uh, somebody sent me a picture of Ghana, like this water. These people collecting water from a bucket. And then they had to like, they showed, they were acting like it's a new technology and how they could pay for their water via cell phone. And I was like, wait a minute, why do not, did they not have water connection to their houses? And it's because they privatized the water and now people can't afford it. That is just like shocking to me to see that picture being celebrated as a technological advancement. But I get very emotional about this because it makes me so mad. Well, you know, abuse and, and corruption and exploitation, there's an app for that now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Many apps like uh, like Fiverr is the one that's really uh, ugh. so it's this app where allegedly people can get any test for five dollars. And so what it does is obviously get people in the global south doing things like editing, uh, I don't know, like editing essays or something like that for like five dollars. So it's like hiring a lot of gig workers that you underpay. Um, so there's many apps for that. But so now the thing about it is that the way the IMF is set up and the way you create the market is just not meant for this. So do you have a vision of how you would create a more, a better, a different, less exploitive market so that Congo has a lot of um, coal train and we need it, but we need to be able to get it without the exploitation. So what kind of system would allow for that? I think this begs the issue of having alternative forms of uh, regional integration or even continental integration, even uh, new forms of South-South cooperation because uh, countries individually are not too strong. Congo does not have enough power to uh, impose some legislation to the big multinationals of the planet, etc. But if Congo is united regionally with all the other all these other neighbors, 
or if the African continent is united, they could have the same policy vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say, the multinationals and vis-a-vis -vis the WTO, the World Trade Organization, etc., vis-a-vis the, the IMF, International Monetary Fund. So I think at one point we need another framework of, of integration, regional integration. But unfortunately, whenever they are talking about integration, they are using uh, neoliberal forms of integration. For example, free trade. They will say we need free trade. That means removing all tariff barriers, non-tariff barriers. For example, they said if you put the farmers in competition, the farmers in Senegal and the farmers in Kenya, that will be good for them. But if you were to see another type of integration, we say what we can do together to achieve uh, self-sufficiency together, energy sufficiency together, to build the continental infrastructures to help develop inter-African trade links, etc. But this is not the type of framework. That's why, as Fadel said earlier, we need the social movements to be informed about those issues and also to be involved to reclaim another type of regional integration, another type of development policy. Mm, and have I forgotten to discuss anything that you wanted to discuss? Because I want to make sure that we've covered all the issues. You know, this uh, open letter will be available on our website, uh, which will be the hub hopefully for this movement, for everybody in Africa, the global south and beyond. And everyone in America, too, because you have to hold your government responsible because they're doing a hundred things like this. So you better be writing one letter a week to your congressman to make sure he behaves. Uh, absolutely. So the, the website is uh, mes-africa.org. MES stands for Monetary and Economic Sovereignty, so mes-africa.org. And you're going to find the letter there on the homepage, available in 50-plus languages with audio recordings for people who wow. are visually impaired or for people who can't read. So we want to make this accessible to as many people as possible. We want people with podcasts to share the audio recording in all the languages available. We really wanted this... Um, I mean, we could have written this letter and sent it to prime ministers and staffers in Congress and whatever. It would have gone nowhere. This is really aimed starting a conversation and a discourse with the general public in the global south to engage in a conversation about what are the possibilities, what are the real obstacles, so that we're not fooled by, oh, it's just a market. You guys don't understand the market. This is too sophisticated for you to understand. <laughs> Your heart and, and your, you know, your intentions are in the right place, but you just don't understand economics. That's just, you know, call their bluff. We want people to be empowered by a coherent narrative and to demonstrate that a better world is within reach. We're not talking about pie in the sky and then understand what these obstacles are. So please join us on the website, follow us on, on social media and share these ideas with people who are really looking for answers and looking for practical ways they can engage in this uh, process of, of changing the world. We, the clock is ticking. We have no time in terms of the climate uh, emergency, in terms of the global inequality, uh, in terms of you know, the, the socioeconomic dislocation and socioeconomic exclusion that's happening globally. And, and this pandemic may not be the last, as many experts have said. So Whatever has been exposed in the last few months, we haven't done anything structural, systematic to change those structures. So it's only going to be amplified and it's only going to amplify the, the suffering for, for no good reason when we have practical solutions within reach. I know that Father also said it, but this open letter has been signed by more than 500 people from the whole world. And I think this is important. The declaration might be on Africa, but the issues uh, it addresses are relevant worldwide. And to have this kind of, let's say, uh, road reach is really important because uh, we are also internationalists to say that we believe in international solidarity between uh, peoples everywhere in the world. The context might be different, but humanity faces common challenges. And it's important that uh, we be in a situation of solidarity between ourselves, between peoples, and of opportunity of having such kind of spaces to share information, to exchange knowledge is really important and is part of the dynamic of global solidarity we want to be uh, part of. 
And next year, there will be a conference on similar lines in Dhaka. So it will be the second edition of our economic and monetary sovereignty. And we will want to have the same kind of uh, broader reach and diversity in the conversation. And, and the information about the conference is going to be on that same website as well. Uh, I'd love to go through the list of people who helped organize this effort, but the list is so long that it will take, uh, I don't even know all the people. <laughs> and, but I'll, I'll just highlight, you know, our colleagues, in addition to Ndongo and myself, uh, my colleague Ines Mahmoud and Maha Ben Gadha from uh, Tunisia and Kai Kodenbach from uh, Germany, who are the, the co-authors of, of this letter, but there's literally dozens of people, I don't have the exact number, maybe 70 or 80 people who helped with the translation, with the proofreading, with the audio recording, with the sound editing, massive amount of work behind the scenes, and they're all volunteers. But to amplify what Ndongo was saying is that many of the translators are not from Africa or you know they're from Europe, from India, from China, from Latin America, from Pacific Islands. And as soon as I send them the letter and they start reading and start the process, they say, wait a minute, this sounds like you're talking about my country. We have these problems too. So this is why we, we really uh, want to emphasize that it's written from an African uh, perspective, but this is really a global South perspective. This is an anti-austerity perspective for our friends in the Eurozone who understand clearly what, what, what happens when you impose austerity. So it's really calling for a global movement, a solidarity movement to push back against the austerity narrative, push back against the, you know, the, the TINA movement. There is no alternative. And, and what we're showing is that there's plenty of alternatives. It just requires a different framework for analysis, for organizing, and for implementing public policy. Absolutely. And thank you both for coming. And I'd love to have you both on again. And yeah, these kind of episodes are always my favorite because like, we're a long show in that we don't have that time limit. And I know like if it's a radio segment, they have 15 minutes and then they have to cut to commercial. And so they can't discuss these complicated issues that cannot be discussed like in those 15 minute segments that they want you to discuss it in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Have a great afternoon and thank you again. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Enjoy. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.